Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared, and your host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B, SaaS, and cloud thought leaders, executives, investors, and people just like you to discuss the metrics and benchmarks they use to make metrics-informed decisions. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Today, we are joined by Adam Wilson, CEO at Trifecta. Today with Adam, we'll be covering three main topics. First, the value of establishing thought leadership in your industry. Second, the five key strategies to creating that thought leadership. And third, data wrangling and data engineering cloud, the what, the why, and the how. Adam, please take a moment to give us a brief background overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Awesome. Well, Ray, thanks for having me. It's great to be with everybody today. And uh, it's been a really exciting journey for me. Really, I've spent my entire career in data integration, data transformation, data cleansing. Most notably, before becoming CEO of Trifacta, I was in a variety of general management and leadership roles at data integration company that you know was an early pioneer in ETL or extraction, transformation, and loading, a company called Informatica that just IPO'd or re-IPO'd, I should say, yesterday. So uh, it's been a fun journey to see you know, how this space has really grown up and exploded since the early days. And for me, you know, jumping into Trifacta was a chance to be part of what's new and what's next in creating a category around self-service data preparation and around data engineering. And that you know led me to think very deeply about thought leadership and uh, ultimately resulted in this uh, article that uh, was published recently in Medium, which connected the two of us. So uh, that's a little bit of how we got here. Was in fact a, someone that you highlighted in that article is a very close colleague of mine and a previous guest on the show, and that's Dave Kellogg. And you highlighted him as a great example of establishing thought leadership in a particular category, which is SaaS metrics, right? Yeah, absolutely. Dave is somebody who I've followed for years and, uh, you know, just incredibly generous with his experiences, um, which are broad and deep, having both run marketing and also been a CEO and been an investor and an angel. And I mean, he's really a man of many talents, you know, who has been just phenomenal in capturing a lot of the lessons learned from over the decades and through his Kell blog, sharing that, but also at conferences and on podcasts like this. So he's somebody that I admire quite a bit, and I'm, I'm proud to call him a friend. I followed Dave for many, many years also. And when I saw your article, I knew I had to reach out. And the first question I want to ask you about your Medium article is, before we talk about the five key things to establishing thought leadership, my first question is, why? What's the value of establishing thought leadership, both as an individual in your industry and also as a company? And I'm really asking, how do you measure the value? Yeah. Well, I think it was interesting for us, and I'll just give you maybe an anecdote from our own experience at Trifacta. You know, we were starting out doing work in an area around how do you take raw data and to refine it. And there were a lot of different approaches that had come before, you know, dating back, you know, well over a decade in terms of how people were doing this work. And I think the original research that created the company was born out of a PhD thesis um, that Sean Kandel did when he was at Stanford, but was also working in collaboration with professors at Berkeley as well. And their observation was that most of the time, the cost 
you know, a lot of the pain, frankly, you know, was still in this part of the puzzle of how do you get eyes on raw data, refine it and make it useful to someone so that you get nice, clean rows and columns. And their hypothesis was that, you know, maybe the reason this is still so hard is because the people who know the data best can't do the work. You know, this has become the exclusive purview of the highly technical and people who understand databases and data models and know how to do structured programming are not always the best people to take the data and understand how it gets applied to make business decisions. And so for them, context really mattered. And so they started really thinking about like, well, what would we do differently if we wanted to democratize this process? And if we wanted to welcome more people into the exercise of engineering data products and into the exercise of preparing data for analysis, and they decided that they wanted to turn it into a user experience problem that would be powered by machine learning, where you could learn from the data and you could learn from how the user interacts with the data in order to automate a lot of the really complicated things and to make it possible for people who are data-driven and data-savvy, but not necessarily structured programmers, to do some of this work on their own. And so they created a prototype called Stanford Data Wrangler, and within six months, they had 30,000 people using it. And that's when our good friends at Excel and Greylock and Ignition, a number of you know tier one VC firms in the Valley came knocking and said, hey guys, we think there's a real company here. But really as part of that, it was an implicit bet, not just on a new approach, but it was an implicit bet on, on category creation. And it was really this idea that we need to get people to think differently about how this work is going to be done and who is going to do this work. And... It isn't just going to be an approach that's been the traditional ETL approach that's been driven by, you know, IT organizations, but we have to think about how we can get more and more people doing this. So, so really from day one, there was an imperative on establishing thought leadership around why does this work need to democratize? Who should really care about it? Who should benefit from it? And to start to build a grassroots movement around this being a thing that people should invest in. And so really from the very beginning, like there is no trifecta, you know, there is no company, there is no self-service data preparation category without this evangelism and this thought leadership, which the founders took to the streets to really go after and to raise awareness around, but then, you know, ultimately attacking not just people at the conferences and, and on the, through the blogs, but, you know, to the analysts and really building community around a lot of these ideas, which, you know, for me, I was lucky enough to come in and, and help pick up the gauntlet and run with it. So. Adam, I'm no ETL or data wrangler like you, but when I looked at the five key strategies to establish thought leadership, your first one was question fundamental assumptions. And I think I heard you just give an example of that, but in this case, I would think that we're a database architect or a data architect or a DBA or someone else in the engineering and R&D group really manage this entire data prep. You're saying the end users or the users of the data could do this. So who did you have to communicate basically the question of the fundamental assumptions to? The current target buyers or the users? Yeah, that's a great question. And the, and the reality is both. You know, I think it first started off by you have all these people out there who've been told for like the last decade that they need to be more data driven. And they're like, great, I'm happy to be, but give me the damn data in a form I can use it. And I will, but don't tell me to be more data driven. And then tell me I have to wait six months for somebody to generate a warehouse so I can actually start to see something. And then by the time I see it, I go, well, now, now that I'm looking at the data, that's not really what I wanted or, hmm, now my questions have changed. So I think, you know, fundamentally it was, 
helping people to know like there is a way to do this in a self-service fashion. There is an approach where you don't have to feel like you're constantly waiting, where there's this kind of impedance mismatch between kind of your voracious appetite for new cuts of data structured and shaped in new ways and often small and in many companies kind of shrinking the number of people who are ready, willing, and able to provision it for you. And so really it was about first like helping people appreciate that this could be something they could do on their own and empowering to do it. We didn't have to like get them excited about the idea. We had to let them know that this was something that would be possible. And then on the flip side, we had to go back to the folks in the IT organization and let them know like, hey, listen, there's way more of them than there are of you out there in, in the line of business. And you know, if you don't find a way to democratize this, you're going to get run over because you can't hire your way out of this problem, right? It's uh, There's not enough budget out there. And even if you had the budget, like finding the talent is just super hard. So why not unleash, you know, the organization? And what you might find is that because people with context are able to see for themselves and help themselves, you might find that they actually come up with new and interesting data products, and it may change the strategic nature of your role, right? It may now allow you to say, I'm not going to spend all my time provisioning cuts of data. What I'm going to do is have, figure out how to crowdsource the best stuff bring it back into the organization, make sure it's shared and reused. I may also spend time going out and looking for new and interesting data sets that I could bring in that people might be able to stitch together in unique ways to create um, new insights. And so it just, it really made up-leveled and made that role strategic. So I think for us, it was like helping to convince people that in letting go of some of this work, that everything was going to go faster and that ultimately they were elevating the strategic nature of their role in the organization. And the data work being done by those making a lot of the business decisions was probably better place. So you get to better outcomes. And so it's a, it's a big win for everybody, but it, you have to get both sides of that collaboration excited about this. Now let's zoom back out a, a little bit because the second thing you shared in your article was point to the data. And basically it says you need a vision you need to communicate that vision, get people excited about it, but it needs to be backed by early data. So in this example you just provided, how did you actually prove that this work with real successful data points? Yeah, well, it's, you know, a lot of it comes down to understanding existing models for how the work was getting done. And that was a big part of the PhD research that was done very, very early on on campus, which is like, can we measure, you know, the time that it takes to go from question to analysis and insight? And can we actually understand almost like an information supply chain problem or in a manufacturing scenario, you know, understanding where there are bottlenecks on your assembly line, but it's like, who touches what information in what order? Where do the requests go? Who does what work? Where are the harder pieces of the puzzle? And really starting to model all of that out and starting to really, you know, break it down in a way that you can understand where those efficiencies are and so, or inefficiencies are really. So it really began there in a very rigorous, you know, academic way in trying to go after a number of real world examples working in concert with companies and industry to model this out and then to start to see where the patterns of problems uh, exist. And then to ask questions about, well, why is it that existing approaches, existing tool chains aren't able to solve these problems? Like, why is it that this is the way it is? And so I think that it was really born out of a, a very scientific approach that was ultimately hypothesis driven and rooted in deep research that allowed us to then prove 
that if we could shrink some of these areas where you were seeing both massive delays as well as in some cases poor quality you know of data that would surface you could dramatically improve the effectiveness of the work that the end users were doing and i think that really was kind of the origins of the company and then over time because we were looking at all the usage data it became really fascinating to then see what are people doing then in the wild and how are we helping to speed up certain activities and starting to measure that so that we could not just understand where the problems are, but we could understand the impact that our approaches were having on their ability to execute a lot of these data pipelines and a lot of these, you know, creating these data products and make that much easier and much faster. It sounds like the trifecta story, you had a, a unique advantage where this was born out of a research project at Stanford, correct, Adam? That's right. That's right. So a lot of our listeners are first-time entrepreneurs and founders, and they typically have experienced a business problem that became the catalyst to founding their company. But they don't have being at Stanford or having an ability to do long-term research. So my question to you is, if you want to ask provocative questions that will stretch people to think in a new and interesting way, one of your recommendations, mm -hmm. how do you recommend you accomplish that in today's kind of digital social world when you're not within an academic environment? Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's lots of different ways to do it. And, you know, and some are more ad hoc or anecdotal and, and some are more really research driven. But I think what's very interesting for me, you know, and I, again, I'll give you just one example kind of ripped from our history was one of the ways we, we got a lot of feedback and actually one of the ways in which we, you know, over time decided that we needed to evolve our message, you know, based on input was one of my first presentations as CEO of the company. I'm in front of a you know, Fortune 100 financial services company presenting at their innovation summit, room full of executives. And I'm talking about the gospel of self-service and you know, I'm spreading the word about you know, democratization and all of this. And the presentation went really well. I was super, super excited. I'm like, they seem to get it. And the CIO of that bank pulled me aside after the meeting and said, you know, that was, that was fantastic. And I was just, I was thrilled. And she said, but you know, we're never going to buy your software. <laughs> and I said, what? Why? Like, tell me why. And so what was interesting in that moment was I, I said, I know you got a busy schedule, but if you can literally let me buy you one cup of coffee, spend 15 minutes with me, and I want you to pound on me and tell me what we got wrong. Like, why say that you this isn't a product you would buy? And it was very interesting because, you know, this was very like visceral research, real-time, you know, feedback. And we proceeded to spend 15 minutes together. And she went through a whole discussion on, she's like, listen, we're a highly regulated bank. There's like, you know, real world governance issues and other, you know, we're worried self-service is going to turn into chaos. Like this is not going to work. This is not like in our DNA. And I, and so then it gave me an opportunity to ask her questions on like, well, you know, do you think self-service in general is useful? And she said, sure, but understand the constraints we deal with. Okay. How could we remove some of those fundamental constraints or at least address them in our product. And so we ended up spending, I thought it was going to be 15 minutes. We ended up spending the better part of an hour. And I scribbled notes in a notebook during that discussion that kept the company busy for the next like six years, which was just like ideas around like you can only democratize insofar as you can govern. You know, you have to be able to still trust what you're doing. You don't want self-service to turn into chaos. How can we help with that? And really, I think it taught me a very valuable lesson on you have to consider all the constituents. You have to really think about how this work gets done beginning to end, 
not just solve sort of one specific piece, but it's really a systems issue that you have to consider. And so for me, that was like an example of firsthand research that complemented the academic research that had been done where we were out, you know, showing what we were doing, telling the story, but also being willing to get beaten up a little bit and being willing to listen and being willing to ask maybe some painful questions about where we got stuff wrong in order to accelerate the learning. Let me ask this, because in that one-on-one environment where you can really ask the tough questions and take real critical feedback to help you evolve your message, I get that. But in today's kind of social media and digital world, where you have a lot of people trying to establish thought leadership on forums like LinkedIn or Medium, you can get a lot of, I would say, less than helpful feedback. Is it worth the risk to evangelize your message on social mediums while you're trying to establish and create a market segment or establish thought leadership? Absolutely. And, and, you know, you are going to get noise. Um, That's always the case, especially when something is less curated and more sort of broad communication. But, you know, those are also really low cost experiments that you can run at scale, right? So being able to put out messages and see what people interact with, whether those are ads or posts on LinkedIn or posts on Twitter, soliciting direct input and feedback through those forums, see like, do people even interact with it? right? Do people click through? Do people provide feedback? Do people raise their hand? You're trying to understand intent. You're trying to understand what catches. And that's everything from like a message, like, is this marketing message strong all the way through to, are these capabilities interesting? And so we will use that experimentation or that approach, you know, quite frequently when we're trying to do something in a very low cost way, where we're trying to pick up some signal, you know, without necessarily making the major investment of building all this up front for people to touch and feel immediately, but always thinking through like lightweight prototypes, lightweight tests that we can run. And I think the example that you gave around leveraging, you know, blogs, leveraging articles, leveraging social media, leveraging ads, like all of these are, are great ways to do those kind of broad scale, but also very cost effective and lightweight tests of ideas and messages. And uh, I think that's incredibly, incredibly powerful. And any organization that's starting that's capital constrained, that's probably true for every company, but certainly for earlier stage startups, you know, that is an A number one technique that everybody, you know, needs to use if they're not already doing it. What do you think about when you would engage something like a focus group or even user testing organizations to provide feedback. Is that another great source of feedback in this establishing thought leadership? Yeah, I think so. But what's interesting is that sort of the, we used to do, you know, and this was now years ago, back in the early days of the company, we used to do very traditional focus groups on certain topics. And I think what we found is that there was some group think that kind of crept into some of the conversations that I think wasn't always super helpful. It was also hard because you were often asking people in theory, you know, how would you feel if, or tell us about a time when, and I think what we we ultimately decided was that by shifting more to a product-led approach where we could get people into clickable prototypes or into trials or into things that they could start to meaningfully interact with, the richness of the feedback went way up. And to some extent, you can't hide from behavior People will say a lot of things, but the minute that they're asked to do something or they're applying what you're working on to a specific problem, they're either going to use it or they're not. 
and you're going to be able to measure whether they used it or they didn't. And ideally, you're going to be measure, you're able to measure whether it was effective or not. And so I think that behavior data for us just created clarity in ways that sometimes the more traditional focus group discussions didn't necessarily, you know, kind of help us through some of the more challenging decisions. It sounds like one of your recommendations, not only put words in your mouth, is quickly move from hypothesis to experimentation and real applied feedback. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's amazingly important. And I think that none of the big ideas, you know, they're all works in progress. And I think it's important to approach this in in that spirit, you know, where you may have a contrarian point of view on a market, on a technology, or you may just, and there may be a time horizon shift that occurs where one of our investors is Greylock and Sarah Guo, who's a partner there, talked a lot about inherent bias from prior investments, where if you invested in Webvan, you probably would miss Instacart because you'd be so jaded from that experience that you'd be like, oh, it'll never work. And here's all the problems. And here's what we ran into. And you're probably disinclined to back the next generation of that same basic concept. But in this case, you would have been wrong because this is now a wildly successful company. Well, what changed? A ton of fundamental assumptions changed around not just the technology, but also around people's patterns of behavior, demographic and psychographic kind of evolution of different communities of people and their needs. So I think that you have to always kind of think a little bit about those moments in time and constantly be testing your hypotheses, revising and tuning, you know, based on new information that's showing up. And that's really very hard to do because sometimes our experience may teach us, you know, something that we almost have to unlearn in order to sort of see the new reality that's evolving right in front of us. I'm going to double click on something you said earlier, which was about avoiding groupthink. And your fifth key strategy to establish thought leadership was all around bringing people together to rally behind the cause. So if you're early in trying to create a new category, et cetera, aren't you inherently going to get people who, i.e., share your vision or think like you do to rally behind the cause? And how do you ensure you get the, the contrarian perspective to be part of that group? Yeah. Well, what you find, I think, for the, I guess, the early adopters of of new ideas or new technologies is that they tend to be a rambunctious bunch. (laughs) They tend to have a lot of strong opinions, which I think both is good in battle testing a lot of these ideas, but also I think is good because then they very passionately get behind some of these new concepts. and, And that's why you see markets shift so quickly is that you have these raving fans that really feel like they're part of your extended team. And these ideas now become uh, ideas that they themselves identify with and want to champion. And you really can't do it on your own. You have to do it through community. I was at Saster recently, you know, listening to a talk on community-led growth, which is sort of a, a twist on on all the focus that's on product-led growth right now. And it was really talking about like, how do you connect with communities of people and get those communities excited about what you're doing, perhaps well in advance of, of ever having, you know, fully fleshed out these ideas or even had products, services, offerings, businesses behind them, but really starting to establish, you know, credibility and start to establish a bit of a uh, rapport with a raving fan base that is passionate about a, maybe an, a broad idea or a broad topic where you know, you may want to do work. And I think that's a really powerful idea and a powerful concept because 
those become force multipliers for everything that comes next. Your feedback cycles, your early adopters, your early customers, you know, they become an extended part of your sales organization. They become an extended part of your marketing organization. They become the people who write the reviews for you on the review sites. So the, the thing kind of cascades from there. And I think that especially, you know, any SaaS business that is scaling efficiently, you know, is probably going to get about 50% of its pipeline from expansion or from word of mouth, right? So people telling their friends, this stuff is great. You should check it out. And if you can't figure out a way to build that kind of community and create that kind of passion for the sort of new way to do things, then it's really hard to kind of get hit escape velocity and kind of break out of the gravitational pull of, well, this is just the way we've always done it. And it's well understood. And I don't like changing behaviors. I don't like learning new things. Like those are all kind of, you know, human nature things that you have to tackle as you go from kind of early adopters into early majority and beyond. So it's interesting. One of your recommendations was build a community that people can bet their careers on. Right. Mm-hmm. And I thought that's a pretty big ask. But then I was thinking back to another guest I had on the podcast, and that is Nick Meta from Gainsight. Right. And they had to build the community of customer success professionals because the success of the profession was going to directly correlate to the success of their company because that's who they sold to, right? Absolutely. Did you have the same thing at Trifactor where you had to build a community of people who were going to, quote unquote, maybe not bet, but make their careers on bringing Trifecta into their organization and trying something new? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and, and Nick did a masterful job at this. I've known Nick uh, over the years, and I would say a lot of the the lessons learned there and a lot of what he did in creating, you know, this community of customer success and, you know, helping to sort of define it and, and helping to, again, create a category, I think is, is incredibly impressive. I think the the reality is that people are looking for ways to accelerate their careers. They're looking for ways that if they can acquire new skills and new experiences that inherently make them you know, more valuable to the jobs that need to be done. And so I think it's one thing to come along and say, hey, we're doing this thing, but it's just got a little twist to it. And those are more accessible innovations and can be wildly successful. I mean, you know, the minute that Swiffers came along, you know, people stopped buying mops. And the minute that rollerblades came along, you stopped seeing so many roller skates. So sometimes dumb, simple innovation that sort of take a concept that everybody knows and give it a little twist, you know, can be incredibly exciting. And it's also a bit safer innovation because it is evolutionary rather than completely revolutionary. But I think that in some cases where you sort of see something where there's there's a clear discontinuity between the way things are done now and the way things need to be done in the future, that sometimes requires a, a bigger bang approach, which is often very capital intensive, very time intensive, and much, much higher risk, but also often much higher reward too. And so I think that, you know, when you look and, and see what the Gainsight team has done in really helping to create an entire profession around, you know, customer success management and all of the process and tooling around that, you know, as I said, it's incredibly impressive, but it's also, I know how hard that work is. And I know that that takes a lot of time because you do have to get people to sort of step outside the sort of traditional roles and processes that they've had, start to think of their themselves, the evolution of their careers differently and the kinds of skills that are going to be required and convincing companies that this is something that needs to be a line item in their budget and not just a line item, but like probably an entire organization, a team and a culture that needs to be created that may have not existed before. 
so again, massive, massive lift, but also massively impactful. I mean, you definitely are an innovator. You're the first person on the podcast to ever use the word Swiffer and rollerblades. <laughs> but we're going to pivot to another new term. It's interesting. My youngest son is applying to college and he wants to be a data scientist. Great. So, you know, I'm helping on, on some of his essays, et cetera, and looking at the interdisciplinary nature of data science. But you've introduced a new term that maybe we need to include in one of the essays, and that is data wrangler. Adam, yeah. what is a data wrangler? Yeah, well, so we decided early on that if we were going to help the people who know the data best do the work, that we should use their vernacular. And they didn't see their problem as an ETL problem. That was sounded like a more technical term, extracting, transforming, and loading data. When you would ask them, you know, where where is the, all the time and the pain? They would say, well, I spend all my time wrangling the data or munging the data or stitching the data together or blending the data. They'd use these more colloquial terms to refer to the work that they were doing. And we said, you know, if we really are about starting with the user, um, which was one of our core values as a company, then we should probably embrace their terminology. And they thought of the work that they were doing as, as data wrangling work. And so we said, great, like we are going to start talking about this as data wrangling. We're actually going to at one point name our product data wrangler, and we're going to really kind of uh, meet them where they are and hopefully show that our approach is different, not just the technical approach, not just the user experience we're creating, not just the fact that this is going to be delivered through the cloud in a way where there's not a lot of infrastructure friction and where it's like really, you know, easy to consume, but we actually want the way we talk about ourselves. It needs to be a whole body experience and the way we talk about ourselves needs to also resonate with that audience. And so that's uh, that's where that comes from. But it is interesting because when you talk to people, whether they're data scientists or data engineers or uh, data analysts, you know, they will use terms like, yeah, we're, you know, we've got a project where we're spending all this time wrangling the data. And the stats were always that 80% of the effort in any analytic project is, you know, taking that data from raw to refine and preparing the data. And then the joke was always that the other 20% is complaining about having to like, you know, wrangle the data. So we want to try to make that a little bit faster, easier, better, and maybe a little more fun as well along the way. Well, I always thought being an entrepreneur was a little bit like being in a wild, wild west. And now you've combined the wild, wild west with data engineering. In fact, you also have one other term I want to kind of wrap up today's conversation with, and that's the data engineering cloud. And honestly, until I was doing research, I hadn't heard of data engineering cloud. So can you tell me exactly what that means? Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, our belief is that, you know, these days, it's very hard to differentiate fully based on algorithms because the algorithms are in the open source community. They're being given away by the cloud vendors for free. They're being, you know, our, our co-founders, who two of whom are professors, teach this in their classrooms and have forever. And so algorithmically, it's tricky to differentiate. Also, you know, gone are the days when only the big sophisticated companies could do the big sophisticated things. Now anybody can spin up a complex environment with the click of a button. And so really the difference is the data, right? So how quickly can you take data from, you know, of all shapes and sizes that are some of which is born inside your firewall, some which is born outside your firewall and pull it together you know, to create a data product that yields a unique insight. And so that work, whether that's done by a data analyst or a data scientist or a data engineer is data engineering work. And so 
you know, we really felt that, you know, making sure that, you know, we could provide this as a completely cloud-based service that within clicks, people could be taking really complex, in some cases, really large data sets and pulling them together into something useful would be a really powerful concept. And many of the customers we work with, they have a lot of data and they've been collecting it for a long time. It's like a technology history museum of everything that you could have ever imagined. And yet they still need to be able to harmonize that so they can do their analysis. And so we wanted to provide a platform-based solution, a cloud-based solution in order for them, a place for them to do that work, a place for them to collaborate in doing that work, to share a lot of that work. Um, and so that was the really the origins of the data engineering cloud. Thank you for providing that insight. And unfortunately, our time's coming to an end, but I want the audience to get to know you a little bit more on a personal basis, Adam. So I'm going to ask you three quick questions, sure. to kind of share your perspective. And the first is, which CEO or company do you think is a must-follow today for fellow cloud executives? Well, I already gave you Dave, and I know he's a former CEO. Um, that We talked about him earlier in the podcast, so I'll, I'll, I'll give you another one that I'm a big fan of. So Mark Roberge, who is uh, also a very successful entrepreneur, deep experience at HubSpot, I love his discussion of product market fit as different from go-to-market fit and everything that goes into that. So if you haven't checked him out, um, I think he's also an adjunct professor at Harvard these days uh, when he's not investing and, and jumping into entrepreneurial efforts himself directly. But I'm a big fan of Mark and, and a lot of the work that he does. Yeah, Mark, um, you know, Stage 2 Capital is his investment firm. And he's brought a lot of fellow and former go-to-market operating executives to create the fund. So I totally agree. Yeah. Mark is a great resource. Yeah. Second question, which tool not your own, should every SaaS company be using? So we recently, I'll give you a recent one. We have lots of tools we think everyone should use, but if you force me to pick one, I'll just pick one that we've implemented in the last probably six months that has been dynamite for us, which is Mad Kudu. So, you know, when you're really talking about instrumenting what's going on in your product, understanding not just like when conversion's happening, but why it's happening and doing that in data-driven ways, and as you're creating experiments and running lots of them and tuning them all the time and looking to establish efficacy, the, the Mad Kudu platform and the data science behind that platform as it relates to especially product-led experiments that you're doing has been incredibly valuable to us. So I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan. You know, we're recent converts, but I would encourage everybody to check them out. Sounds like it takes traditional product analytics to another level of predictive and AI-based insights. That's right. That's right. And you need good prepared data for that. So that's where we get involved. <laughs> but, but once you have it, the things that they do that help to correlate, give you some sense of not just correlation, but causation in terms of the changes that you're making really has been insightful for us in, in decision-making around capabilities, onboarding flows, marketing programs, et cetera. You're talking my language, causation. Maybe we can talk about R squared and logistical <laughs> regression in a minute. But no, I don't want to lose my audience. Yeah. Last question. What advice would you give a recent college graduate or early career professional who wants to be a professional data wrangler? Well, it, you know, it's it's a really interesting discipline because I think it it combines strengths in technical understanding with a deep appreciation for business problems. And in the end, also requires a lot of skills in interpersonal dynamics. And what I mean by that is that often data lives in lots of parts of an organization and the people who are 
who own that data aren't always the most willing to share even if it is for the broader benefit. And so I think being able to like, you know, build up a skill set of how do I solve problems? How do I collaborate across organizational boundaries? You know, because a lot of the interesting questions tend to be cross-functional in nature. You know, even simple questions like, you know, who are my most profitable customers? Like that could require data from 15 different systems to really, you know, understand that deeply. And so I think that combined with some of the, the technical acumen, you know, makes for a very powerful skill set that can be pointed at a lot of really big, important strategic problems. And so I think that creates a lot of upside in terms of career paths for people in this organization. But probably the best advice for that individual who has that profile or that background and that interest is go find, you know, places to inhabit where you have interesting data sets where people are super curious and where you can surround yourself with individuals who like you are, you know, really passionate about not just having lots of anecdotal conversations, but really kind of driving that into the numbers. And I think for me, those are, especially here in Silicon Valley, you know, there is an abundance of people who, you know, live, eat and breathe data and lots of places to go rub shoulders with folks that are like-minded in that way. Not to say that there aren't other parts of the world where that's possible. There certainly are, but it's, uh, I've been fortunate enough to be in an environment where I get exposed to a lot of that. But I also am fortunate enough to like work with companies that again, are super curious, asking really meaningful questions and have corpuses of data that they've curated that are potentially incredibly interesting and valuable, but need people to spend time with them to really to sort of bring out those insights. And so go solve big problems, interesting data sets, working with interesting people. So well, it sounds like data driven has led to data noise and I need a data wrangler. And I cannot tell you how much I appreciate your time and insights you provided today. So Adam, thank you for being our guest. Yeah, no, thank you. Really enjoyed it, Ray. And uh, as I said, longtime fan. So it's great to finally be on the show. To our listening audience, it would mean the world to us. If you're enjoying the guests and the content we cover, go ahead and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app. Go ahead and give us a ranking and a recommendation how we can make the podcast even more meaningful and valuable to you. Thank you so much, Adam. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.